Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Hey, hey, friends, thanks so much for tuning in to this online gathering of Redeeming Hope. And I'm so glad that you guys are tuning in with us today as we celebrate our fourth Easter together as a church family. And I'm so glad that you're tuning in as we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And as we begin, I want to remind us of why we exist. My friends, we exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. And that's so important to who we are as a church is that we are family, that we follow Jesus and we help others find Jesus. And and the primary narrative that we see, the primary kind of visual analogy that we see of ourselves as a church is a family. That means we treat one another like family. That means we work together. We serve together. We help one another as we would our own flesh and blood, because that's how we see the church, the church as a family. Not only that, but we unapologetically follow the life and teachings of Jesus. This means that we believe that Jesus is Lord. We believe that Jesus is our savior. We believe that he rose again after three days and that he is alive with his father in heaven. And so because of that, we believe that Jesus is actually leading his church today and leading us. And so we want to encourage you to get into a group, to read the scriptures consistently. And as you, as you spend personal time abiding with Christ, as you're in a discipleship group, and as you show up consistently to our gatherings, hopefully in person here in Clarksville, what that does is that begins to form and shape you around the person and the work of Jesus. It helps you follow Jesus. But not only that, we don't just exist for us. We exist for the people that aren't here yet. And so we also want to help others find Jesus. So we want to live life like missionaries. We want to see every interaction at Starbucks, every interaction at the YMCA, at the gym, every interaction that we have at a restaurant or at our jobs is that we are functioning as missionaries here in Clarksville. And so if this vision appeals to you, if this is something that you're interested in, I want to invite you to reach out to us. If you're here in Clarksville or in the surrounding region, uh, you can text us 931-326-4512. You can email Derek or me, Derek at redeeminghope.org or Josh at redeeminghope.org. You can also, if you would like to read the Bible with us or join a group or um, just see kind of our church's communication, you can go to ourhope.cc slash discord. It's our communication tool where we post encouraging scriptures and links to sermons, as well as how all of our groups communicate. Now, you know, as we begin this Easter online gathering together, you know, as Derek and I were thinking and praying through this day, really God was leading Derek to just introduce this idea of rest and this idea of so often in the world around us, so often in our professions, how far we get is determined by how hard we work, right? So you work harder and you do more and you're better than your peers and you get noticed, you get promoted, you get advanced, you get the pushed and propelled forward. But the problem is the moment that stops, you stop, right? The moment that stops, it's over. And 
so often what we've found is that that idea of work harder, do more, and be better has actually crept into the church, where we can think, well, if I just look good, if I just act the part, if I just work really hard to be a good person, if I just work really hard to appear like I have my life together, then I'll be okay. Then I will be internally okay. But what we find as we open up the pages of the Bible, as we look at the life of Jesus, as we look at the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, we see that Jesus invites us not into work, but he invites us first into rest. Look with me at Matthew 11. It says, come to me. This is Jesus speaking. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what the gospel calls us into, my friends. This is what the good news of Jesus' resurrection that we are celebrating this very Easter is inviting us into to see that the work is over, that we are done, that the work is over for us, that Jesus has accomplished everything for us. And what he invites us into is he invites us into his rest. So as we begin this Easter celebration, this online gathering, I want to encourage us to remember that as we're thinking through Jesus, meeting his disciples on the road to Emmaus. I want you to remember that Jesus invites us into his rest because the work is done. Now, um, one of the joys of having a co-lead pastor and Derek and I being co-lead pastors is that we get to do fun things. We get to do things that, um, uh, that, 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 that we can share pulpits, we can share vision, that we get to dream together. And this also means that sometimes we also preach together as well. Now, now Derek is primarily running point over our gatherings, and that means that about 75% of the time, Derek is preaching and he's working on our sermon series, he's crafting where we're going in our ministry, teaching ministry, preaching ministry. But yet also I get an opportunity to preach about 25% of the time. And just like um, I speak into our gatherings, Derek also has a significant voice into our groups, significant voice into our admin, significant voice into those things as well. And so today is a little different. We're going to be co-preaching our Easter sermon today. And I get the privilege to tell you about the story of God. And so we're going to see literally the story of the entire Bible from Genesis to our text today in Luke 24. So let me introduce our morning with a story, the story of God. See, a long time ago, there was a garden called Eden, and God created the entire world by speaking it into existence, but he specifically chose to plant this garden called Eden himself. And, and when God made the first two humans, Adam and Eve, he took them and he placed them into this special garden, and he gave them everything that they needed. Everything was perfect. There was no brokenness. There was no shame. There was no disconnection. There was no fighting between Adam and Eve. Can you imagine a marriage without fighting? There was no sin. There was no death. There's just togetherness and unity. Everything was looking bright. There was an infinite amount of hope for the future that Adam and Eve enjoyed. And in the garden, there was just one tree that God said not to eat. But an evil serpent came, he crept into this garden and he tempted Adam and Eve. And what happened is they ate of the fruit of that one tree. 
And what we see in the first few pages of the Bible, that perfect garden was instantly broken. Shame, disconnection, and fighting and death entered in those first few moments after Adam and Eve ate of this fruit. And, and, and what we see later is that Adam and Eve were kicked out of this special garden that God had planted, and their lives became really, really hard. What we see is that hope was lost. But as they left the Garden of Eden, God promised that one day a Savior would come and save them. And that this promised savior would deliver a crushing blow to that evil serpent that had crept into the garden who represented sin and death in the world. It was actually Satan himself. And what we see is that as Adam and Eve were leaving the garden, God reintroduced hope into their life. And so what we see is throughout the whole story of the Old Testament, um, story after story, there was no, there was, there was no promised savior. Thousands of years go by. And what we see is cycles of sin where depravity gets worse and worse. We see death and suffering and pain. And what began in the garden became full grown in this chapter of human history. Sin and death and brokenness still reigned in the world of the cycle of suffering and sinning. Hopelessness was reigning in the world with no end in sight. But one day, in a little town called Bethlehem, a child is miraculously born to a virgin. And miraculous events surround this miraculous birth. People prophesy that this baby was this promised savior promised from so long ago. Wise men came from far away to follow a star to find this little child and worship him as God. Angels appeared in the sky on the night of this baby's birth, proclaiming his arrival, and his parents are showered with gifts. This is a special baby, and hope begins to stir in the world again. And as this baby grows up to be a man, he is a normal carpenter. So for the first 30 years of his life, he was just a normal human man. But when he turns 30, he changes his profession, and he becomes a teacher. And he invites people to follow him. And he begins to teach that his father is God himself. And he says that he is this promised savior. He talks about a new way of living, free from brokenness, free from disconnection, free from sin, and free from death. People, of course, are confused by this message. But this man begins to do miraculous things like calm, raging storms with a word. He heals the sick with a touch. And then he even raises people from the dead with the power of his command. So many people around him begin to be filled with hope and follow him. Men, women, even crowds of people. Hope is rising in the world around this man who is claiming to be the promised savior. But the world around him also did not understand him. And the religious elite, they were threatened by this man who claimed to be the son of God. And so they planned to murder him. One of his own followers betrayed him. And the religious people got the state to approve of this man's execution. This promised savior who healed many and taught many and taught about this new way of living, who actually lived an entirely perfect life, he was executed, murdered 
by being hung on a cross. And hope seemed to die with him. This promised savior who was murdered was placed into a tomb. A heavy stone was rolled in front of this opening because there were rumors that this man who claimed to be the son of God would rise again after three days. And on the third day after his death, two groups of people go on the move. The first group, three days after his death, are faithful women who came to visit this man's tomb to take care of his body. Even while his own followers, the men, were hiding out of fear that they would be killed too. And as they came to the tomb early in the morning, they saw that it was empty, that this stone that was covering the opening was rolled away. And they began to hope that maybe what he said was true. So as these faithful women were walking to the tomb, that's the first group of people. The second group of people was this man had two followers who were leaving the city dejected. Their dreams of the promised savior were shattered and walking on this dusty road to a little town outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. They journeyed in the silence of despair and hopelessness. They thought their master, they thought their teacher, the man They called Jesus, who was also called the Christ or the Messiah. They thought he was dead in the grave. But they didn't know that as the sun rose on their hopeless journey, hope incarnate chose to walk with them. So let's see how Jesus helps his disciples recapture their hope on the road to Emmaus. Happy Resurrection Day. It is so good to be here with you on this Easter. And we are going to celebrate Easter together by reminding ourselves of the gospel. Let's get right to the text today. We're in Luke chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to read the story that Josh referred to of these men walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray what we need to see, show us where we need to go, take us as we are on our road to Emmaus, Lord, that our hearts are burned within us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three things briefly that I wanna look at in this text with you today is number one, the way Jesus comes to us, number two, the way Jesus affects us when we encounter him, and number three, the way we respond to Jesus. So how he comes to us, how he affects us, and then how we respond. So how does he come to us? Did you notice what he said to them when he started having conversation with them? He said to them, basically, what are you talking about? What are you conversing about together? And he asks us that too when he comes to us. Jesus enters into the conversations we're having within ourselves, the conversations that we're having within culture. Jesus is not irrelevant. He enters into the deepest questions of your heart the moment you have them. They were wrestling with what had just happened in Jerusalem. John says, Jesus came to give illumination, to explain life to us. The gospel of John chapter one introduces Jesus in this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The Greek word for word, when it says Jesus was the word that was with God, the Greek word is logos, and it means authoritative truth. It means final answer to the question. Jesus is the logos of life. So when John says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and came and dwelt among us, he's saying that Jesus came to explain life to us. He came and walked among us And he came among us as the logos of life, the meaning of life, the reason for our existence. And so so when he comes, he enters into our deepest conversations and he answers our questions. Now, how does he do it with them? How does he answer their questions and enter into their conversations? It says in verse 27, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. What Jesus is saying here is shocking. He's saying he opened the Bible, he explained all the scriptures, and he says, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's me. These things testify of me. And that is an absolutely outrageous claim. If somebody said that today, we'd think they're crazy. Oh yeah, the Bible, it's all about me. I am the summary and the conclusion of the Bible. That's what Jesus was saying to these guys. There would have to be remarkable evidence for such a claim. So let me ask you a question. If God came to this world, what would you expect that life to look like? Uh, Maybe he would help the poor. He would do good. He would maybe confront the corrupt. Maybe he would do, you know, cataclysmic, miraculous events that would just be so undeniable. You know, stuff like uh, maybe walking on water, turning five loaves and two fish into enough to feed thousands, or maybe raising dead people. I'd like to suggest to you 
that Jesus lived exactly that life. Jesus did the things that you would expect God to do if he came and walked and lived in this world. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the logos of life. That means he's the author of life. He's the authoritative truth. He's the explanation. And when the author comes into the room, he's the authority, right? I mean, we can agree on that. I mean, can you imagine if three people saw 10 seconds of this, the entire Star Wars series and they were debating what it was about, you know, just had this little glimpse and, and they were asked to explain what the Star Wars series was about after having only seen 10 seconds of it. And one person said, uh, it's, a lot, it's about a, a little green frog named Yoda that convinces his son to kill his father. Oh, well, that's kind of weird. Another guy says, it's about an insecure guy with asthma that covers his ugly face with a dark mask. That doesn't really explain the series, but I guess you could get that if you just saw 10 seconds of Darth Vader. Or maybe somebody sees, you know, the, the Hoth scene and they say, uh, it's about metal dinosaurs. None of them would be right because they only saw a little picture because they just got a 10 second sliver of the whole series. And you and I live in this little sliver of time across all of eternity. Now, what if the author stepped into the room you know, what if George Lucas stepped into the room with these three people debating on what the Star Wars series was about? Well, I think you and I would agree that he's right and everybody else is wrong when he offers the explanation. It's not about a little green frog. It's not about, a, a, you know, an old man with asthma covering his face with a mask. You know, it's, it's, it's not about metal dinosaurs. Here's the story. And he explained the story. Everybody would go, oh, you're the authority because you're the author. In Luke 24, the author is explaining the story. And he's going through Moses and the prophets and he's explaining the whole Bible. And he says, it's about me. And so that's how Jesus comes to us. He, he comes and, and, and begins to dialogue with our hearts about the questions we have. And he shows that he is the explanation. He is the answer. And how does that affect us? Look at verse 32. I love this. It says, <clears throat> they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Has your heart burned yet when you've heard the gospel? They said, our hearts burn. Is, it, is this your experience with Jesus? For some of you, maybe it doesn't make your heart, your hearts burn. It makes your stomach turn. And if that's the case, then you have not yet encountered the risen Christ because to know him and to encounter him is to have a burning heart. To know him is to love him. Here's what we need. We, we need what they needed. We need to have our eyes opened by the spirit of God to who Jesus is and what he's done. Then our hearts burn. And that is the process of what happened even in this very text. Let's kind of go back and pull out a few scriptures. Verses 15 and 16, it says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 30 and 31, a little later in the text, it says, while he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it, kind of a reminiscent of the last supper, and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Do you see the process? They couldn't see. Their eyes were kept from seeing. And then their eyes were opened by Jesus. Really interesting verse in uh, John chapter one. Again, I'm going to reference John. This is the KJV says it this way. Of his fullness, we have all received grace 
for grace. Gosh, I love that. Grace for grace. What we need from God is grace for grace. We need grace to see grace, grace to understand grace, grace for grace to get into our lives and get into our hearts and begin to change us and affect us. So what made their hearts burn? In verse 21, they said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So their eyes were opened to what? That he was in fact the hope of Israel. He is the the promised one. He is the hope that was foretold by the, the prophets. But perhaps they also realized that the salvation he brings would be greater than anything they ever realized. That he wouldn't just save a nation, but he would save the world. And that he wouldn't just save them temporarily, but eternally. And that he wouldn't just save from external oppressors like the Romans, but the internal oppressors of sin and death. So we've seen how Jesus comes to us. He answers our questions. He engages our conversations. We've seen how Jesus affects us. Our hearts burn. We see him for who he is. We see that he is the hope that that was promised. And then finally, how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus? And I think we get that from verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Now we hear that verse and I think if we're honest, we would admit that that kind of talk is tough for us to hear today. Nobody in culture wants to be talked to like this. Uh, You and I don't like to be talked to like this. I'll say it again. Listen to what he said to them. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You know, we live in a culture today that expects us to affirm any and every belief system people have as equal. Now, We respect the freedom of religion and the freedom of people to choose whatever belief system they want, but that does not mean that they're equal. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He says, oh, foolish ones. Let me ask you a question. Will you hear that if Jesus talks to you like that? If as Jesus enters into the conversations of your heart, if he looks at your belief system, your understanding of the world, and he says, oh, foolish one. Why have you not believed the gospel? Will you let him talk to you like that? Will you listen? Because I believe this this scripture tells us how we respond to Jesus. And the way we, we respond to Jesus is we repent and we believe. We believe the scripture's assessment about us, that we're foolish ones when we've rejected the gospel. We're foolish ones when we've rejected God's design and plan for salvation and God's will for our lives. And we repent of that. And then we believe that Jesus is the promised hope. To understand what they were struggling with, let's draw a contrast because it is, it is actually interesting for him to say that they weren't believing when they were actually his followers. So let's talk about this for a second. What is the alternative to believing in Jesus? And I think the, the easy, obvious answer would be to say, well, it's unbelief, right? That's the opposite of belief. Well, yes, if you're actually rejecting Jesus, I suppose that would be the opposite of belief, but these guys weren't rejecting him. So what kind of unbelief is this? What's the wrong way to approach God if you're trying to follow him? Because these guys were not rejecting him. They were just approaching him the wrong way. So what is the alternative to believing in the way that Jesus was describing? And I believe you might describe 
the alternative to believing as earning. The belief system they were in at the time said that in order to be accepted by God, one must keep the law as a means of earning God's acceptance. And this is common to our human nature. Josh was talking earlier about uh, the way the world works and, and that the gospel calls us to rest. You know, I work, I get rewarded. The good are in and the bad are out. And it's a form of unbelief because it's self-salvation and it's rejecting God's plan of salvation in Jesus. And so Jesus takes Moses and the prophets and he explains to them the proper view of how to view it in faith and with belief. They didn't grasp what was happening with the events surrounding Christ because they were still stuck in some way in this system. And Jesus was explaining Moses and the prophets because they weren't grasping what Moses and the prophets had spoken, even though they'd probably heard the scriptures all of their life. Moses represented the law of God. And they thought that the message of Moses was about earning righteousness through works of the law. The prophets called people to repentance and predicted the coming Messiah. So they thought the message of the prophets was about earning freedom through physical warfare by obeying a military Messiah. And they were wrong on both counts. They did not understand a Messiah that taught salvation by grace, a Messiah that stopped fighting and let himself die at the hands of his enemies. You see, there, there's two wrong ways to approach God's law. Even if you have a high view of it, even if you have a high view of the morality of scripture of the 10 commandments and you know, God's law, there's actually two wrong ways to approach God's law. Number one is we run from it. We say, I can never do that. I, I can't keep God's law. You know, I, I need to, I just need to run from religion. I need to run from the church. And I've talked to a lot of people like that. I just, I can't obey the rules. They say, well, that's one wrong way of approaching God's law. But the other wrong way of approaching God's law is to see it as a way to fix ourselves. And then you get lost inside God's law. And ultimately, those who are lost in irreligion and those who are lost in religion are equally as lost. The purpose of God's law, the right way to view God's law is not to see it as a way to fix ourselves or to run from it, but to see God's law as a way to measure us, to show us that the only way of salvation is grace. The only way of salvation is Christ. You might say it this way. The ministry of God's law is to point to Jesus. It's to point us to a savior so that we might see the way of grace. Don't you see the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not things you have to do to achieve or earn anything from God. To truly believe the gospel is to believe that when Jesus said it is finished, he finished the work of salvation and we are saved by his work and not our own. The gospel doesn't tell us what to do to be saved. It tells us what has been done to save us. This is truly news and it's good news. Jesus is alive and he's on your road to Emmaus. He wants to answer your deepest questions. He wants to make your heart burn as you see the way of grace and you see the king of grace. He wants to save you by grace and free you from the slavery of having to earn your own way. He earned your way. And when we believe in him, it's as if we've earned it ourselves. Uh, a few years back, uh, we went to this local youth event and we were playing dodgeball. Um, with a bunch of kids and, you know, I was, I was out there playing with my kids 
And it was the kind of game where if you get out, you got to go on the side and make a line. And the only way to get back in is to be at the front of the line. And if somebody, you know, catches a ball from the other team, you get back in. And so if that line gets really long, you start to feel really discouraged because, you know, how many of my teammates are going to catch a ball, uh, you know, and let us back in the game. And so my son, Jack, was uh, in front of me. We'd both gotten out and he was ahead of me in line. And I started working my way toward the front. And Jack went back in the game. And maybe 10 seconds after he went out there, he got pegged again. And by that time, the line, we were losing bad. The line was so long. He had to go all the way to the back of the line, but I was near the front of the line and I felt so bad for him. I just looked down the line. I said, Jack, come here. And I said, take my place and I'll take yours. So I went to the back of the line and Jack went to the front of the line. And the gospel says that Jesus puts you at the front of the line, that he He's not just our moral example. He is literally our substitute. That he takes my place and I take his. And we are loved by the Father through faith in him with the same love with which Jesus is loved. It's, it's, it's scandalous, really. It's, it's amazing when you think of that. It's, it's hard to believe that. And so we need to hear Jesus say to us as well, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We're slow of heart to believe in grace because it's too scandalous to our minds and our hearts because we're addicted to self-salvation. Jesus says, believe, repent and believe. Believe in, in the scripture's assessment of us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, in some ways, the problem that we have is you have to let the gospel insult you before it lifts you. It calls us sinners. It calls us foolish ones. It says that we've rebelled against him. And then he calls us to himself and he says, come up here. And we come to the love of God. And we realize that I'm more wicked than I ever dared hope and yet more love than I ever dared believe at the very same time. That is the gospel. That is the way of faith. My encouragement to you today, as we consider what happened on the road to Emmaus, and as you are walking your road in life, let Jesus come alongside. Find your rest in him. The journey, the search is over. Jesus came. He died. He is risen. And we can trust in him as Lord and Savior. God bless you. Thanks for listening today and continue to celebrate the resurrection every day by remembering who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.